Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and invite everyone to respond, thanks be to God. Today's reading comes from Mark chapter 15, verse 40, through chapter 16, verse 8. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they have laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, good morning, church. It's uh, good to be with you guys today. Uh, Happy Easter. Having the chance to meet you. My name is Ian. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. And uh, before we jump into our uh, time in God's Word this morning, I want to go ahead and uh, dismiss our uh, kids who are hanging out in Kingdom Kids today. So you guys can go ahead and head to the doors. Uh, If you were in the preschool class, you can come on over here to this side. If you're in K through one, you come over here to this side. And then elementary students, uh, really glad that you guys are going to be with us today. Uh, we do have some clipboards available in the uh, connection room with some things to help you uh, follow along with the service, if that would uh, help you out today. Well, if you're uh, new this morning, uh, a special uh, invitation, welcome to you. So glad that you're here with us this morning as we uh, celebrate Easter Sunday together. And uh, if you are new, we have been walking as a church family uh, through the Gospel of Mark now, uh, nearly verse by verse, for about eight months or so. And this morning is uh, kind of the conclusion of our sermon series. 
And if uh, you're someone who uh, grew up in church or if you've attended uh, church on Easter's before, you'll notice that Mark doesn't tend to get a lot of run as a sermon text for uh, Easter morning. In fact, I'm pretty confident that this is the first time that I've ever been in a service that examined this particular passage on Resurrection Sunday. And as I sat down over the last few weeks to prepare this sermon, in one sense, I totally understand why. I mean, that's quite the ending that we just heard, right? Now, when you uh, watch a movie or read a book, let me ask you the question, what kind of ending do you like? Are you a fan of uh, the story that ends with the quintessential and they lived happily ever after? Or are you more of a fan, and maybe you're more of a sophisticated kind of person, right? We get it, okay? Maybe you're a fan of the uh, suspenseful, unresolved cliffhanger of an ending. Or maybe the story that has a surprise ending that makes you rethink everything that came before it. Or maybe you just like chaos and destruction, and the crazier it gets at the end, the better off it is. What kind of ending do you like? Well, how would we classify the ending of Mark's gospel? Let me read it for you again, just in case you missed it. Mark 16, verse 8, and they went out, the women, uh, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid, period, end of the gospel of Mark. What do you think about that? That's abrupt, isn't it? I mean, no encounters with the risen Christ. No resolved narrative tension here. They just leave fearful. Now, to address something that might pop out at you, I do believe that Mark 16, 8 is the end of Mark's gospel. If you're looking at a Bible or if you've got it pulled up on an app, and if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to grab one of the Bibles from the back of the pews. Uh, That's our gift to you. We're on page 802 if you want to follow along there. Uh, But most Bibles will have a little bracketed section right after Mark 16, 8 that tells you uh, that there's this longer ending in Mark that the earliest and most reliable manuscripts that we have uh, do not include. There's considerable doubt whether or not he wrote this. It doesn't seem to fit right after verse 8, and it uses different language than the rest of the gospel. It goes on to tell about encounters with the risen Christ and all sorts of other details. Now, I don't think that's a malicious intent to twist or modify Scripture. It shouldn't give us doubt about God's Word. In fact, I think we would totally understand why somebody didn't want to end the gospel like that. And what they're doing is filling in the details. But this section, from what we can tell, is ancient commentary, but not inspired Scripture. You can look at the other gospel accounts and even the book of Acts to see what's mentioned in there. But with that in mind, here's what I want us to wrestle with today. Why does Mark end his gospel like that? Why does he end his gospel like that? You see, I've come to appreciate, not necessarily on Monday this week, but maybe by Friday, that there actually is something really beautiful about the ending of Mark's gospel. And by God's grace, I found it actually to be subversively hopeful. Hopeful. And that's my prayer for us today as we look at this resurrection account. All right, here's our main idea this morning. The resurrection of Christ unsettles everything and evokes a response. The resurrection of Christ unsettles everything and evokes a response. Before we jump in, though, let's pray. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for uh, this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and sit under it once more. And whether Easter is a familiar story for us or whether this is something brand new for us, 
I pray today that you would, Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to respond to the incredible claim, Jesus, that you have not just died for our sins, but you were raised in accordance with the Scriptures. May that unsettle us. May that evoke a response within us. And may we see and behold your beauty and your glory and your grace, and may that transform us. May it change our lives here this morning. Help us now in this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we walk through this ending of Mark, I want to see three things. I want to look at the trauma of death, the shock of resurrection, and then end with the one who goes before us. Let's begin with the trauma of death. Look back in the text at Mark 15, verse 40. Upon Jesus' death on the cross, Mark tells us this, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Mark here introduces these women who have been followers of Jesus ministering to him from the beginning of his public ministry. And he mentions these names over and over again in this account, you'll notice. He seems to be evoking eyewitness testimony. These names would have been known to the early church community, and they were uh, almost invited to go and ask them about it. And here we have to begin remembering that before there are any claims of a resurrection, before we encounter an empty tomb, there is the uncomfortable, stinging reality of death. And death is always a traumatic experience, isn't it? If you've had someone close to you die, you know this to be true. Death is an enemy. In fact, the Scriptures say it is our great and final enemy to be defeated. It is an unwelcome intruder, but yet an unavoidable reality. And these women are standing off at a distance from the cross, and they see Jesus breathe His last as He is crucified. And as we looked at on Friday evening, if you were able to join us, for our Good Friday service, it's not just that Jesus died that is so traumatic, it is how He died that is particularly jarring. To be crucified in this time period, in both Jewish and Greco-Roman thought, came with the idea that the person being crucified was cursed and abandoned by God. Those crucified were publicly mocked, shamed, and humiliated. They were strung up on a tree to be made an example of in a public execution. It was meant to unsettle you. And these women, standing at a distance, see it all take place. Let's keep reading verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Friday night, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that, she, that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a, brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of a rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. 
Now, Joseph of Arimathea is an interesting insertion into the account here from Mark. This is surprising because, first of all, Mark tells us he's a member of the council. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. That is the governing body of the Jewish people that found Jesus guilty of blasphemy. That is the governing body that turned him over to Pilate to be dealt with and ultimately to be crucified. Now, Joseph surprisingly and courageously asks for the body of Jesus. This is courageous because this means Joseph, a man with a good reputation, a good standing in the community, someone who had a lot of wealth and was respected, was willing to identify himself with a crucified revolutionary who had been found guilty by his own people and condemned by Rome. See, those who were crucified were stripped of all honor and dignity. They would have been thrown into an unmarked grave. They forfeited their right to anything more than that. So it would have been courageous for a family member to go to somebody like Pilate and ask for the body. Nonetheless, somebody who's not even family of Jesus. So Joseph goes to Pilate. Pilate is surprised that Jesus is already dead. And this is because crucifixion was typically a long, drawn-out process. It would sometimes literally take days for the person to die. When it began to drag on too long, it was customary for the Roman soldiers to break the legs of those being crucified in order to speed up the process. But Mark tells us that Jesus is crucified at 9 a.m. and then dies at 3 p.m. So Pilate is surprised, but friends, I'm not sure that we should be surprised. And that's because this is no ordinary death, and this is no ordinary crucifixion. Yes, Jesus is nailed to the cross, but he is actually, in a strange, paradoxical way, in control. In John 10, he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. See, this may have contributed to that proclamation from the Roman centurion upon seeing the way that Jesus died, that truly this was the Son of God. But listen, all of this is truly traumatic. Just imagine being one of those women. Imagine being one of Jesus' disciples. They had left everything to follow this man for three years. They surely had big dreams and aspirations of what this Messiah, this Christ, this King who was ushering in the kingdom of God, what their participation in that would have looked like. But it was unthinkable that it would end like this. Listen to what Fleming Rutledge says. She says, we owe it to those first Christian disciples to do our very best to understand the utter hopelessness of their situation after the crucifixion. They had invested their whole lives in what appeared to be a diabolical joke. They had seen their beloved master scourged almost to death, dragged through the streets, nailed to a cross, and abandoned to suffer public agony in the face of the obscene mockery of everybody in Jerusalem. Once they had basked in the reflected status of a celebrity who had been mobbed by large crowds, now he had been judged a non-person, fit only the most degrading and sadistic death that the human mind was capable of devising. If there had been any solidarity among his followers, it had vanished. Not one person 
had dared to come forward in the master's defense. And their supposed leader, Peter, had cravenly denied Jesus three times. There was nothing left. The Messiah was supposed to usher in the kingdom of God. For those disciples who had staked their lives on Jesus being that Messiah, it cannot be stated too strongly, there was no hope. Do you feel the weight of that? Do you feel how traumatic that experience would be? And that is why chapter 16 is truly the shock of resurrection. Look at verse, chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? It's now early Sunday morning. These women are going to the place that they saw enclosed back in verse 47. And they're going in order to anoint Jesus' body with spices and perfume. This was customary to honor the person who had died. It may have slowed the decaying process. There was no time for this on Friday before the Sabbath on Saturday, so they come on Sunday. But just to be clear, they are coming to anoint a dead body. Nowhere on their radar is a resurrection. Listen, if you've lost a loved one, a close friend, a family member, you've probably taken a similar journey with a similar posture to these women. You go and you visit a grave site. Maybe you lay flowers. You go with friends. You remember. You pray. You sing. That's what these women are going to do. They are coming to memorialize and honor the dead. Now, Jesus, at least four times in the Gospel of Mark, makes it very clear that he was going to be raised from the dead. I mean, he says it explicitly. Mark goes out of his way the first time to say he made it clear to them. But over and over again, they do not understand it. They do not get it. And listen, you and I would not either. You know why? Dead people don't just magically come back to life. See, we like to think that this culture is a little more naive than we are. We engage in a little chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis says it, and say, well, they were a more gullible society. Surely they were looking to this. Jesus looks right at them and says, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised, and nobody ever gets it. No one is looking for the resurrection. These women are most concerned about how in the world they're going to get the giant stone rolled away. That's their concern. And the disciples, by the way, we know from John's gospel that they went back to fishing. In their mind, the crucifixion was the end of it all. And then verse 4 happens. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man, the other gospel writers tell us this is an angel, sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And then verse 8, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. 
the great irony of Mark's gospel, Jesus over and over again in his earthly ministry shows himself to be this figure, this Messiah, this Christ, this Son of God. And then he says, now listen, don't go and tell anybody about this because you're going to mess up the details. And what do they do? They go and tell everybody. Now here, the angel tells them, listen, now's the time. Go tell everyone, and they tell no one. It's the great irony of the Gospel of Mark. And why don't they go tell someone? Well, it tells us, point blank, they are afraid. They're in shock, if I could use that word. I mean, look at the emotive language that Mark is using here. Upon entering this tomb, they encountered this angel, and they are alarmed. They're not excited. They're not joyful. They're not like, oh, man, it's happening. They're terrified. A million things could be running through their mind at this point. He tells them Jesus is not here, that he's been risen, and after hearing that message, they fled from the tomb. They don't stick around. They get out of Dodge. Their flight response has been triggered and activated. And they flee, Mark tells us, because trembling and astonishment had seized them. Think about the language of being seized. It's the idea of being possessed suddenly or being taken hold of. And they tell no one because they are afraid. Now, why does Mark tell us all this? Why is this his ending? Well, friends, I think that is precisely how you and I would respond if we were there at that tomb as well. This is a nitty-gritty, realistic account, as the rest of the Gospel of Mark has been. In fact, if you think about it, in Mark's Gospel, fear is always the response to an encounter with the power and the glory of God. Right? Listen, sometimes we can pray for God to move in ways that only He can move, And we ask for a revival, we ask for a miracle, we ask for some kind of divine intervention, and there's nothing wrong with that, but we don't always appreciate that when God answers those things, they often don't come with great fanfare and celebration and come look at this, but with great fear and trepidation instead. Think about it in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus casts out a legion of demons into some pigs, when he walks on water when he transfigures himself in glory before Peter, James, and John, when he calms a raging storm with just a word, you know how they respond to that every single time? They're freaked out. They're terrified. Is that unsettling to you? Is that what you expected to hear on Easter Sunday? Well, let me press in a little bit further in case you're not uncomfortable enough. Listen to what Esau Macaulay says, and I think he's right. He says, Mark's ending points to a truth that often gets lost in the celebration. Easter is a frightening prospect. For the women, the only thing more terrifying than a world with Jesus dead was one in which he was alive. Now, what do you make of that? I think he's right, by the way, in the text. It's what the text tells us. What do you make of that? Why is that the case? Well, here's why it's an even more terrifying prospect. If Jesus really is risen, if he really has been raised from the dead, then everything they thought they knew about reality has now been challenged and shaken up. Everything they assumed to be true about the world that they live in now has to be reevaluated. And friends, you know what that produces? Fear. Fear. By the way, none of this reads like an account that was made up, does it? I mean, if you wanted to convince the world that Jesus had been raised, you wouldn't make it up like this. 
You'd come and say, oh, man, the angel was there. Jesus emerged from the tomb like a, like a wrestling entrance, right? Like light behind him. He showed himself. We were blown away. We went and told everyone, check it out. That's not how this reads. This reads like a people who encountered news that made no sense to them, that disoriented and unsettled everything that they knew, and it reads the same way that you and I would respond to it. Listen, the resurrection of Christ is not something that these women set out to find, and the disciples aren't even here. The resurrection is not something they set out to find. Instead, it suddenly and jarringly finds them. It's dramatic, and it produces fear. And listen, the same thing is true of us. If we set out on our own to find this, we wouldn't know where to look or how to go about it. Instead, the truth and the power of this, just as it met these women as a surprise, is meant to come upon us as a surprise. It's meant to seize us. And it is only when we are seized by it, as we feel the full weight of the shock and the disorienting nature of it, that we are beginning to open ourselves up to the good news of the gospel. It is only when we've been knocked off our feet and begin to think, wait a minute, if this is really true, what does that mean? It's only then that we begin to be opened up to a new reality. But listen, this is scary because it means that everything that you thought was true about your reality might not actually be true. If there's not some level of fear and disorientation, I'm not sure we've grasped the weight of this. That's why one author says that coming to Christ is more like a train wreck than a fairy tale. Maybe you're here this morning and you know that if you believed this was really true, and if you really started to follow Christ, it would mean a massive disruption and shock to your life. And let me encourage you this morning, you're reading the situation correctly. You're not crazy. That's the whole point. Jesus already knew this. He says back in Mark 8, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That is a life that is different than the life we naturally would want to live. If you're feeling the weight of this, if you're feeling a little bit of fear, that's exactly what you should feel. But what do we do with that? What do we do with this unsettling with this disorientation. Well, I want us to end by looking at the message of the angel, because the angel tells us of the one who goes before us. And as we look at the message of the angel, I think it's an invitation to three things. Okay, first, the resurrection of Christ should challenge your reality. Look at verse six again. And he said to these women, do not be alarmed, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The angel here is inviting these women to look at the evidence themselves. You saw him be laid in this tomb. You saw that stone rolled in its place. Well, look now where his body was. See the place where he was laid. And friends, we are invited to do the very same thing. We are invited to consider the evidence. We are invited to wonder if this is true, if what we thought was true might be challenged. And here's where I want to challenge you this morning. You can't hear this story and simply shrug your shoulders at it and move on with your life. 
You have to respond to the claim of a man who said he was the Son of God incarnate, who died in the place of guilty sinners, and then reportedly was raised back to life three days later. Listen, you can weigh the evidence and decide it's all made up. If this is made up, if this is a hoax, the Apostle Paul says that our faith is futile, we're still in our sins, we're to be all people most pitied. But friends, weigh the evidence. Read this account, read the other accounts, because if this is true, and if Christ has been risen, then everything has to change, doesn't it? If He's risen from the dead, then we need to listen to everything He has ever said. We need to reorient our entire lives around the truth that Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. C.S. Lewis says, Christianity of false is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. If you're here this morning and Christianity is moderately important to you, let this challenge you. It's all or nothing. And these women, by the way, do allow the resurrection to challenge their reality, because although Mark's gospel ends with them fearful, not telling anyone, the reality is they told somebody because the story's right here. Their reality was changed. They let it settle in, and then they shared the incredible news to the disciples, to the rest of the world. Let it challenge your reality. Secondly, let it comfort your heart. Verse 7, the angel says, but go... Tell his disciples and Peter. It's a little throwaway phrase here. You might be tempted to gloss over it, but it's so important. It's loaded with grace for failures and courage for the fearful. Through this angel, Jesus is still identifying with his disciples. He says, go and tell his disciples. As in, go tell those men who had abandoned Jesus at his hour of need Go tell those men who right now are hiding out behind locked doors because they don't want to be identified with Jesus and face some potential consequences. Go tell these men who have failed mightily that he is risen. Listen, the disciples may have disowned and left Jesus and scattered when their shepherd was struck, but Jesus has not left or abandoned them. They are still his disciples. But it gets even Deeper than that, the angel then singles out Peter. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Now, we know that Mark's gospel is really the gospel according to Peter, written by Mark. But friends, there is an ocean of grace in those two words, and Peter. He singles out Peter because Peter was, quite frankly, the biggest screw-up of them all, wasn't he? Peter's the one who swore to Jesus that he would never deny him and that he would die with him. But then Peter has a shameful, cowardly fall as he denies Jesus three times, and then he flees the scene just as these women flee the tomb. But what grace it is that the angel comes, and the first thing that he has is a singled-out message of restoration for the mess-up Peter. He's looking at Peter and saying, listen, Peter, your failure is not the end of the story. In fact, it's only the beginning of the real story that's about to get started. Part of our fears in this world is because we have all failed. None of us have lived the way that we know we ought to and should. And the resurrected Christ sends word to us that there is grace for your failures too. If the angel can say, and Peter, he can say, and your name too. Let that comfort your heart this morning.
And then lastly, let it change your life. He keeps going. Tell his disciples and Peter that he, Jesus, is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The claim that he is going before you, I would argue, is just as important as the announcement that he is not here. In our fears in this life, we need someone who has courageously walked the path before us. We need one who has gone first into the unknown future, seen all that there is to see, and then comes back to gather us together and tell us it's going to be okay. We need one who has gone before us even through the scariest things and the unthinkable circumstances that frighten us, and then who comes back, grabs our hand, and leads us through it all. And that's precisely what Jesus has done. Friends, Jesus has gone before us in all the ways. He is, Hebrews says, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is the captain of the mission. He has gone before us through death itself and come out the other side victorious. He has emerged, Revelation says, with the keys of death and Hades in his hand and tosses them aside so that we too might follow in his footsteps and overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. He has loved us first so that we might love him. He shows us grace first so that we might show grace to others. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, the preview of what one day will be true of all who are in Christ. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is before us right now as he is the head of the church and the chief shepherd of the flock, and he will go before us in his promised return where he will make all things new and set all things right, including you and including me. What they all thought was the end was only the beginning. When we realize that he has gone before us, it's an invitation in the midst of our fears and doubts and uncertainties to a new way of life with our eyes fixed on the one who has blazed that trail. Tim Keller says this, the resurrection of Christ is not just something to believe in, it's something to be lived. Christ is not a dead teacher. If he was a dead teacher, then being a Christian would just be to believe what he said, but since he's a risen Lord, he comes and penetrates our lives with a new order of being. So let's end where we started. What do you make of the ending? of the Gospel of Mark. Let me ask it more pointedly, is this a happy ending? Is this a story of, and they lived happily ever after? Well, I think the answer is kind of. This is not a happy ending where all the storylines are artificially resolved and everyone lives happily ever after in some kind of Disney-fied sense. This is not a story of wishful thinking and hopeful fairy tale resolutions. And I don't think it ends like that because it's a real story, and that's not our real-life experience, is it? Instead, the story of Mark's gospel is what J.R.R. Tolkien has coined a eucatastrophe, which literally means a joyful catastrophe. Here's what Tolkien says. He has a little essay on fairy tales. He says the best kind of stories, the stories that don't just entertain us but grip us, are those that have a sudden and unexpected turn through a catastrophe, not in spite of one. Here's what he says. Listen to this. He says the best stories are when a sudden turn comes 
and we get a piercing glimpse of joy and heart's desire that for a moment passes outside the frame, rends indeed the very web of the story, and lets a gleam come through. It's the mark of a good story that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give to child or man or woman that hears it a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, near to or indeed accompanied by tears. Friends, the resurrection is the sudden turn of the universe. So this morning, has it caught your breath? Has it uplifted your heart? Has it brought you to tears? It is the greatest story ever told because it's the truest story ever told, and it's why those stories grip us. It's unsettled everything, but it's also at the same time beautifully piecing it all back together by God's grace. It's the story of all sorts of brokenness and sadness, but also the hope that we dare to believe that every sad thing will come untrue. So this morning, church, hear this good news in the midst of our fears and failures. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. He is risen. He is not here. He has gone before you. Let's fix our eyes on the one who has gone before us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the hope that it brings a fearful and uh, people who fail like us often. And we thank you that it is an invitation to dare to believe in the midst of the brokenness of this world. Uh, we thank you that it is a true you catastrophe. It is the story of beauty from ashes, of life from death, of wholeness from brokenness. And Lord, for those of us who live lives that are full of pain, suffering, uncertainty, all the things that we encounter in this fallen world, may you give us the hope and the faith to dare to live as if it were true. May this not just be something that's moderately important to us. May this truly change our lives. May it invite us into hope. May it comfort our hearts. And may we run to your throne of grace that we might receive mercy and help in our time of need. Lord, meet us with your grace this morning. We ask you to move in the ways that only you can. Strike us with the unsettling nature of that, and then draw us in your kindness to repentance and faith and worship. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>